Today is the final Sunday in our two-month-long uh, study on the life of David. For those of you who have been a part of Brookstone for more than just a few weeks, you know that we have spent every Sunday this year studying the life of David and seeking to put our feet in his footsteps. Although you would, you would agree with me, we don't need to put our feet in all of his footsteps because as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, David, like us, made some mistakes along the way. But over these last couple of months, we have been on this journey with David where literally we have learned about surrender and we've learned about courage and we've learned about devotion and we've learned about worship and we've learned about uh, what it means to make mistakes and sins and how repentance brings the mercy of God to us even when we, when we struggle along the way. God has taught us so much through the life of David. And today we're going to come to the final message in this series, and it's the final message because we're going to come to the end of David's life. And so the text today is going to bring us to David's deathbed. In fact, you have your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 2. We're only going to look at a verse and a half in that chapter, but I wanted you to see it. 1 Kings 2 verse 1 says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged his son Solomon, saying, I go the way of all the earth. I go the way of all the earth. That's a poetic way of saying all men and women die. It is the way. Death is the way of all the earth. And it doesn't matter who you are. You can be David, the emperor of Israel, the mighty king David, or you can be more like us, Average, ordinary, normal people, it doesn't matter. Big or small, rich or poor, high or low, educated or not, it doesn't matter. It is the way of all the earth. All men and women die. And as surely as David had a lot to teach us in his life, and he has taught us a lot by his life, he also instructs us wisely in his death. And we need this instruction because we, one day, me, you, all of us, one day we'll go the way of all the earth. And I think we all, we all know that we'll die differently and we all know that we don't know the day that we're going to die, but we all want to hear the same words after we die, don't we? If you know Jesus, you want to hear these words, the words that Jesus said we might hear. He didn't guarantee us that we would hear them, but he said it's possible that you can hear these words and we all want to hear them. Do you know what the words are? Well done, good and faithful servant. We all want to hear those words. We want the, 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 uh, the God of eternity, our heavenly father, to look in our eyes and say, well done. And I have to tell you, I think David heard those words. I really do. Now, that being said, we all know that David didn't always do well. But even though he didn't always do well, I'm convinced that he did hear the words, well done. And by the way, that gives me courage because I'm a guy who doesn't always do well either. Any other uh, people in the room who don't always do well? Yeah, we, we find courage in the grace of God by the fact that even though we don't always get it just right, as long as we have breath, there is hope that while we haven't always done well, we can finish well. And so I want to help you today think about coming to that moment in life when we reach the end, when our work is finished, and when we will hear God speak 
and we want to hear him say, well done. Can I give you a principle that I just think is important, and uh, at least it's important in my life. I think it'll speak to you as well. It's a really simple truth that says this. Um, and by the way, I've learned this as I've gotten a little older. I've reached midlife in my, li- my life. Some of you are midlifers as well. You know, midlife, they say when you get into your upper, later 40s and into your uh, even your mid-60s, that's kind of the range of midlife. Now, I can tell you, mid-60s, I think it's a little bit beyond midlife for most of us. But, but I'm certainly uh, midlife or a bit beyond that. And I've really learned that this, I've, I've come to understand, I should say, more and more, that this principle is true. It's this. It is that finishing well doesn't mean that our work is finished. It only means that we're finished working. If you think about that for a second, it'll, it'll really begin to settle in your heart, I believe, that when we come to the end, none of us will have really finished the work. It will just be that our opportunity to work will be finished. Because the truth is, the really important things in life, I mean, the, the thing that matters the most in life, that work was happening before I got here. And it will continue on after I'm gone. So for me to finish well, I just need to take that great work and pass it on so that those coming along behind me can continue in that work as well. That's exactly what David is doing in 1 Chronicles chapter number 22. He's coming to the end of his opportunity to work and he's passing along this great work to his son Solomon. Now, I want to set the scene for you just a bit. We're going to read the passage in a moment in 1 Chronicles 22. But let me tell you what's happening in 1 Chronicles 21, okay, just to give you the context. Let me begin by telling you that that when you come to this season in David's life, and it's late in his life, David has become a bit prideful and self-sufficient. Now, listen to me very carefully. David has become a bit prideful and self-sufficient in his mid to later life. And this is a common snare, a common trap for those of us in mid to later life. It's easy for us to become self-reliant, to become uh, self-sufficient. That's very different from when we're young. Do you remember when you were young? When we're young, we still wrestle with pride, but it's a different kind of pride. It's kind of an arrogant, I know it all, even though I've done nothing kind of pride, right? I'm indestructible. I've got all the answers. That's kind of that youthful arrogance, right? We, we get past that. I mean, we grow out of that. We, as we mature, we realize we don't know everything. We don't, I don't even know all the questions anymore, let alone have all the answers. So we, we sort of grow out of that. But then we begin to actually live some life and we begin to actually do some things. And, and once we've got some years behind us and some water under the bridge, it's very easy for us to begin to think, you know what, I got this. And what can happen is, are y'all tracking with me? Does anybody feel this? What happens is we, as we reach mid and later life, we can become pretty smug. I mean, we, we can begin to think, I don't really need anybody. I don't really need God. I mean, I, I can just kind of, I've got this thing figured out. And I, and I can make it happen so we become uh, prideful and self-sufficient. It's exactly where David is. 
As a result of his pride, he gets entrapped in that snare of pride and he commits a sin. Now, I'm not going to tell you what sin is. You can go read it in chapter 21 later. But, but when you come to chapter 21, as a result of David's midlife pride, God is judging him. And in fact, he's judging the Jewish people by extension as a result of David's sin. Look at it, how this judgment is pictured very dramatically in chapter 21, verse 16. Here's what the Bible says. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and the heavens. He had his sword drawn in his hand and his sword was stretched out over the city of Jerusalem as if he was uh, preparing to bring one final uh, uh, you know, uh, cut of judgment upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a dramatic picture of the, of the judgment of God just waiting to fall as a result of David and the Israelites' midlife smug kind of pride. Now, if y'all are with me, would you shout amen? I want to stop for just a second. I want to make one quick aside. This really is not part of the teaching today, but I think it's just too important for me to not mention it. I wonder, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if there is not an angel of the Lord, if we could see him, maybe even today, between the earth and the heavens, over the United States of America, with a sword drawn, ready to level judgment upon our nation. Could verse number 16 be a very apt description of what's happening in the heavenlies with regard to the United States right now? Now, Let me tell you why I say that. Studies have been done of historical life cycles of civilizations. And every one of these studies arrives at the same conclusion. And it is this. It is that civilizations or cultures or societies tend to have a life cycle which begins fledgling, experiences some victory, reaches a power, a zenith of power and wealth and might, then begins to decline in morality until ultimately that culture dies. And throughout history, the average lifespan of cultures is between three and four hundred years. The United States of America today is 245 years old. We are midlife as a country. And I don't know if you sense it, but I certainly sense that among many of our cultural elites and among much of what I hear coming from the talking heads on the news shows and in many of our politician statements, I hear a smug disregard for our history and for God and his authority and a sense of we are the United States and we can always be great and we can make it happen. And I just wonder if in our midlife pride and self-sufficiency, God has not drawn the sword and the judgment might be preparing to fall. Now, I don't know that that's true, but here's what I do know. That if it is true, then the rest of this passage ought to encourage us because just before the judgment came, God gave mercy to David and to the Jerusalemites and we could experience that same mercy, amen? And so we need to ask God to bring his mercy upon the United States. Well, this is what's happening in chapter number 21. The angel is about... To bring judgment. And so look at verse number 18, chapter 21, 
Verse 18, it says, Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, he's the prophet, he commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel. He and his four sons hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself down to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me or sell me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it, take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. I will give it to you. I will give you the oxen also. You can kill them and offer them as a burnt offering. I will give you the threshing instruments, my winnowing fork, and all of my instruments and tools. You can have them to build your fire. I will give you the wheat that I've been threshing for a meat offering. I give it all. I love Ornan, by the way. What generosity. Just take it and use it. And David says, no. Verse 24, I will not take it, but I will buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is yours for the Lord, nor offer a burnt offering without cost. You might be familiar with the passage, the parallel passage in 2 Samuel, I think 24, where David says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me Nothing. So verse 25 says, David gave to Ornan uh, the price of 600 shekels of gold and he purchased his threshing floor. And then David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And God answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering. Listen to verse 27. And the Lord commanded the angel and the angel put his sword into the sheath Thereof, It's a beautiful picture. Remember, verse 16, the sword is drawn because of their sinful pride. Here comes the judgment. And God says, but I'm going to offer you the opportunity to repent and to ask for my mercy. David goes to this threshing floor, buys it, builds an altar, makes an offering. Oh, God, forgive us. And God says to the angel, take your sword and put it in your sheath. And the judgment of God is tempered. The judgment of God and the plague that's been coming upon Jerusalem is removed. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God in our lives, the grace of God over any nation that will seek that, and certainly the grace of God over David and the Jewish people. Now, by the way, if you're not asking this question, you ought to be asking it, and it's where is this special place? I mean, why couldn't David offer an offering just anywhere? I mean, why did he have to go to the house of Ornan, the Jebusite, and by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. It's a very sacred place that God wanted him to make this offering. Can I show you where it is? I brought a picture of it today. They'll put it on the screen. It is right there. It's the city of Jerusalem. But it's not just the city, the general area of the city. It's within the old walled cities. You see the wall there, that old city. And it's not just anywhere within that old city. It is where the gold dome is. We don't know if it's exactly under the dome, maybe just a bit to the left of the dome. But it is right on that area, the top of Mount Moriah, where David purchased the threshing floor of Ornan, and he made that offering, And when he saw the, the sword of the angel go back in his sheath and he knew that God had accepted his offering and given him mercy, then David knew immediately that this was the place 
where he could commence the greatest work of his life. Where he could begin the first stages of carrying out what had been the deepest burden of his heart. And it was a project that he wouldn't complete. His time to work would be finished. But he could finish well by starting the work and then handing it off to his son Solomon. So let's read about the work. The text begins in chapter 22 and verse number 1. You follow along as I read. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. I, I really want you to feel this, okay? David makes this offering right there at the top, the, 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 the peak of Mount Moriah, at the threshing floor of Ornan. God accepts it. The angel puts his sword away. The judgment is stayed. And David immediately says, this is it. This is where God's mercy is going to dwell. This is where we will offer the sacrifices to cover our sins. This is where God will take care of our iniquity. This is the place for the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of the burnt offerings for Israel. David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to begin the work of hewing the stones to build the house of God. David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors and the gates and the joints and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and they which were of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said to Solomon, or, or David said of Solomon, Solomon my son is young and tender, young and inexperienced. And the house that he is to build uh, for the Lord is to be a house of exceeding magnificence. Its fame and its glory should be known throughout all the countries. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. If you're a note taker, you have a pen in your hand, I want you to underline that statement at the end of verse number five. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind, in my heart, to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you, shall, uh, you have shed blood abundantly and you have made great wars. So you shall not build a house under my name because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. But behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from his enemies round about and his name shall be called Solomon and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his last days or in his days. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever and now, speaking, verse 11, no longer quoting God, but speaking directly to his son, David says these words in verse 11. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord prosper you. And may you build the house of the Lord your God as he has said you would. Now, do you know what the great project was that David wanted to set about after God had given such mercy in chapter 21 and he said, this is the place where it has to happen? Do you know what the great project was? If you don't, you weren't listening. <laughs> Eight times in these 11 verses, it's mentioned, build the house of God. 
Build the house of the Lord. Build the house for the name of the Lord. The greatest desire in David's heart. And he said it to Solomon in verse number 11. The greatest desire of my life. Listen, church. David would say, Solomon, son of everything that I've done. Even when you consider all of my great campaigns and my great wars and victories. When you consider all of the wealth that I've amassed, Solomon, my greatest desire has not been to win wars, not to extend our territory, not to amass great wealth. My greatest desire has been to build a house for the Lord, to build the temple of God. And Solomon, I can't build it. God has not designed that I'm going to build it, but you, my son, you are going to build it. Now, the house that David wanted to build and the house that Solomon would ultimately build is no average or ordinary gathering place. It's it's no average synagogue. Look back up at verse 5, chapter 22, verse 5. He says in the middle of the verse, the house of the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. So magnificent that its fame and its glory would be spoken of throughout the entire world. And I want to tell you, it was that kind of a magnificent house. Would you allow me to describe it for you or to read to you the description of it just briefly? Turn a few pages forward. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter number 3. Just quickly, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, Then Solomon began to build this house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Where did he build it? He built it in Mount Moriah. Where at Mount Moriah? On Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Well, there you go. When I said a minute ago it was right there, that's where it was built. You say, well, how does he really know that? Because the Bible tells me where it was built. In the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, right there on Mount Moriah. And it was an incredible house. It was filled with exquisite works of art. And I don't mean paintings, but I mean exquisite hand-wrought works of iron and silver and gold. Uh, cherubim and, and candles arbras and, and seven uh, armed candlesticks and tables for holy bread and, and, and great altars and a beautiful place filled with these works of, of craftsmanship. Many of the rooms were lined with the cedar wood that David had provided. It was a place that was bedecked with with precious stones and and gemstones. Much of it, entire rooms overlaid with pure gold, filled with golden and silver implements of music and implements of worship. It was a beautiful place. Verse number five, I'm sorry, verse number six says that it was garnished with precious stones. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, all talk about the gold. Look at chapter, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse number 1. He made an altar. This altar just outside the temple where they would bring their offerings was no little altar. 
I mean, we, we call this an altar. It's not where we make sacrifices, but we surrender ourselves. It's just a little, little space. The altar that they built was 30 feet by 30 feet and elevated 15 feet high. You had to walk up a ramp to get on top of it. They built a, a, what's known as a laver. It's called a sea in the King James uh, in verse number 2. It's called a sea because it's a huge basin of water. It's about 15 feet wide, circular. It would hold 17,000 gallons of water. And this is where they would come and prepare the sacrifices and wash themselves and wash the sacrifices and then up to the altar to make the sacrifice and then into the temple with the blood of the offering. It was this magnificent, profound building. Can you see it? If you can't, let me show it to you because I brought a picture of it, all right? It's on the screen. There it is. It's, this is just the outside of it with the laver to your left and the altar to the right and the temple there in the background. Th- this was Solomon's temple, the house of God that he built. But here's what you need to know about the temple. The external beauty of the temple and the grandeur of the, of the building and the, and the adorning of gemstones and, and gold overlay, it wasn't those things that made this temple so special. It was rather the divine purpose for which God wanted the building constructed. It was that divine consequence or result that would come from this temple existing. Solomon's temple had three primary purposes. We won't turn for the sake of time. Let me just read them to you really, really quickly. You can jot them in your notes and look them up later. The first purpose of Solomon's temple was that it would be a place of God's presence. Really important. This is where God would meet with his people. Now, previously he had met with them in the wilderness and the tabernacle, which would move from place to place. Now God says in Jerusalem, I'm going to have a permanent home where I'm going to meet with my people. It was the place of his presence. They could pray to him there. He would respond to them there. He was listening to their prayers. It was there where God's presence dwelt. Number two, the temple of Solomon was a place to proclaim God's truth. It's where what was true of God might be made known to the nations might be made known to the people, primarily that God is holy and unapproachable and that the only way that you can approach him is through the blood of a sacrifice. That's the primary truth. That's gospel truth, by the way. The temple had the purpose of being in the place of his presence and the place of truth. Number three, the temple served the purpose of praising God's glory. It was the place where God was worshipped, where if nowhere else in the world It was at least at Mount Moriah, at Ornan's threshing floor, where Solomon built this temple, that the one true God would be exalted above all else. And that while the nations might worship trees and rocks and stones and moon and sun and stars, that the one true God would at least be worshipped in that house and none else would be worshipped. And the Levitical choirs would stand and sing and sound the trumpets and and the offerings of worship would be made. It was a place where God dwelt, where his truth was proclaimed, and where his glory was known. And building this house of fellowship with God and this house where his truth would be known and where his glory would be praised was the greatest work of Solomon's life. And David spent his last days helping his son build the house. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's all great, and I'm glad to know it, and I love Bible history, but what does that have to do with me in the 21st century? 
Listen, if you don't already understand the application, let me make sure that you know it. Do you know what 1 Corinthians 6.19 says? It says, what do you not know? That your body is the temple of God. Solomon's temple has been destroyed. It no longer stands. You say, well, there's no temple anymore. No, there's a temple. And the temple is the body of every believer. My life is the house of God. And the greatest work, are you listening? The greatest work of your life and mine is to build a house, a life, where the presence of God is seen and where the truth of God is proclaimed and where the glory of God is celebrated and he is worshiped in this life. It is the greatest project you'll ever apply your intentionality to. It's the greatest work that you, will, you or I will ever do. And the truth is, I want to build that kind of life. I hope you do. I want to build that kind of life where if nowhere else, we sang it this morning, I've decided to follow Jesus, though none go with me. Where if nobody else worships God, he's going to be worshiped here. And if nobody else will proclaim his truth, I'm going to speak his truth. And if nobody else will experience his presence, I'm going to experience his presence. That's the life that I want to build, and I want to build it well. But can I be honest with you? After 55 years of living, I have to admit, I haven't always been a good builder. I haven't always built well. But as long as I have breath, I know that I can finish well. And like David... I can take this greatest work, and while I may not have done it just right, I can, before I finish my time to work, I can pass it on to those that are coming behind me and help them build well. And that is how I finish well. It's what Solomon received from David. It's what David invested his final years in, was to help Solomon build well. So let me finish our time together today by just talking about how he did it. What is it that David did to help Solomon build the right kind of house? And from that, we'll learn what we can do to help those coming along behind us build the right kind of house. Number one, David instilled a passion for God in Solomon. This is about shaping Solomon's heart. He instilled a passion for God in Solomon. You see this in chapter 22. If you're not back there, go ahead and go back. First Chronicles 22 and verse number 7, where David looks into the eyes of his son, who, by the way, is young and tender, King James says, young and inexperienced. The word might even mean young and coddled. He looks into the eyes of Solomon, his son, and he says, Solomon, my greatest desire, man, the thing I've wanted to do, as I mentioned, more than kingdoms and empires and lands and wealth, the thing I wanted to do more than anything was to build a house for God. Solomon, I haven't done it all right, and, and, and I'm not going to be able to get that house fully built, but you are. And so I'm going to instill in you the passion for this house that God has put in me. Look at verse number 11. So he says to Solomon in verse number 11, Now, my son, may you be, or may the Lord be with you, and may he prosper you, and may you build the house of God. David instilled the passion for building this house in Solomon's life by the words which he spoke. I want you guys to hear me very, very carefully, especially if you're midlife to older life. I want you to listen to me. As we get older, 
we have the privilege of passing along to those coming behind us, our sons, our daughters, our nieces, our nephews, or others that we influence. We have the privilege of passing to them the, the, the passions of our hearts, right? And you know how we do it? You know how we pass it along? With our words. It's the words that we speak. It's the conversations that we have. It's the things that we talk about. And in talking, in sharing, in, in having conversation, we pass along those passions. Now I'm concerned that for some of us, we're most passionate in our conversation with our children about hunting, fishing, the, the, the latest, greatest football star or college team. We've told our kids all of the professional sports and college heroes on the gridiron, but they've never heard us say much about Jesus. They know that we're passionate about worldly things, but they don't know that we're passionate about Christ. And so if that's you, here's my challenge to you. Change the way you talk. There's nothing wrong with talking about football. I love football. Nothing wrong with talking about hunting or fishing. Those things are cool. Or fashion or whatever it is. I said fishing and fashion. Whatever it is. But just change the way you talk. Instill some passion in their heart by telling them about your passion for Christ. Number two, David prepared the material for Solomon to build with. This is about how Solomon would actually do it. So he shaped his heart with his conversation. Then he helped him prepare to build by providing him with some materials. This is seen in verses uh, 2 through 5. Where is it? David started gathering workers, and he started gathering iron, and he started gathering brass, and he started gathering cedar trees, and he just started assembling all the, all the materials. Look at chapter 22, verse 14. Verse 14, David speaking to Solomon says, Now behold, in my trouble, it means I've gone to great pain and expense, and I've gone to a lot of trouble, Solomon. And I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1,000,000 talents of silver, and of brass and iron without weight. It is in abundance. Timber also have I, uh, and stone also have I prepared. Now look at the last sentence of verse 14. And you're going to have to add to this. Everybody listen to me. If y'all are listening, say amen. What David said is, Solomon, I've given you a good foundation. Man, I've begun the work. I've prepared you. But I can't build it for you. And you've got to add to it. And parents, grandparents, this is what we get to do. Do you understand the great privilege of our mid and later years? That we get this privilege to come to the end finishing well by laying a foundation for those coming behind us so that they have the tools they need to build a house where the presence of God will be and the truth of God will be proclaimed and the glory of God will be worshipped. So what do you think they need? What do you think... My kids, your kids, our grandkids, our nieces, nephews, our, those in our student groups. What do you think they need from us to help them build a house where God will be honored? Maybe we could list a lot of things. Let me give you several real quickly. Number one, a love for God's word. I think the greatest thing you can give your children if you want them to build a house where Christ will be honored is you teach them to love this book. And you teach them to read it, and you teach them to study it, and you show them how to handle it, and you show them what it means to reverence it and obey it. And you don't just say that, do that by taking them to church. You do that by modeling for them what it looks like. They see you reading it. 
They know mom's got a place, dad's got a place where they go to. They read their Bible. I see them with their Bible open. This Bible matters to my mother, matters to my father. They need to see that. You're giving them the foundation of a love and a respect for God's word. And then when they say, mama, I want to do this. Daddy, can we do that? You say, what does the Bible say? And we respect God's word and we obey God's word. You lay a foundation. The second thing that they need, the second tool that they need is a commitment to God's work. Where you say, you know what? What God is doing in the world matters to me. And son, daughter, I want you to grow up. Grandson, granddaughter, I want you to know that you spend your life saying you honor a God in heaven, but you know that he's at work in the earth and you're committed to his work. You pray for it, you participate in it, you serve in it, you support it, and they see you supporting and advancing God's work. And then thirdly, you give them courage to stand for God's ways. They need to see that in their in their parents and grandparents. We don't bend, we don't break when the cultural winds blow, but we stand for what is true. And I believe if we'll give them these tools, and maybe there are many more, that that'll make a difference. Finally, if you want to give to your, your children and grandchildren and others that you influence the tools to be able to build this life, you need to instill in them a passion for God. You need to provide them with the material to build with. And then thirdly and lastly, you need to provide the pattern Because David provided the pattern for Solomon to follow. This is about teaching, David's teaching Solomon about the holiness of God. I want to take you over to 28 to close. Look at chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles and verse number 11. If y'all still with me, say amen. Watch this. 1 Chronicles 28, 11. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern, the pattern The porch and the houses and the treasuries and the upper chambers and the inner parlors and the place of the mercy seat, the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit, the courts of the Lord, the chambers round about, the treasuries of the house, the treasuries of the dedicated things, the courses of the priests and the Levites and the work of the service for the house of God. I want you to imagine this moment because it happened. I mean, it it is described here that David takes his son Solomon and he says, now Solomon, I've given you, you got piles of gold and you got stacks of silver and you got piles of cedar trees and planks. You've got mountains of gemstones and precious stones. You've got all this stuff to get started. But what are you going to do with it all? Solomon, come here. I want you to imagine this moment. He takes Solomon into his, into his room and at the table, they roll out some sketched up blueprints. <laughs> David or others have been sketching out what this is like. And he said, now, son, this is modeled after the tabernacle, but it's bigger, it's grander, it's, there's, there's design you need to know. And so Solomon, here's the porch. Now, and this is the way the porch goes on the building. And as you go up the porch, and you're going to enter into the holy place, and, and then you're going to go into the most holy and the holy of holies. And, and Solomon, as you go in, this is the way the furniture needs to be. And did you notice what verse number 12 says? He showed him the pattern that he had gotten from, you see it? The Spirit. Are y'all listening? That what the Spirit, if y'all, if y'all listen, shout amen. Don't you miss this. That what the Spirit of God had poured into David about having a house where he could walk from the outside into the inner courts where the mercy seat was and be with God in his presence and be right with God and worship God and proclaim what is true about God, he said, the Spirit has told me how that's to happen. And Solomon, I'm giving you what he's given me. Here's the thing. 
Solomon knew how to walk with God. And all he had to do was put his feet in the footsteps of his father. Imperfect footsteps, footsteps that got off track periodically, but steps that were headed in the direction of God and his holiness. And you know how you can have a good assurance that you're going to hear well done? You, will, you, you can't go back and unlive some days. I wish I could. You can't go back and do right some things that you did wrong. I wish I could. But as long as there's breath, I've got hope of hearing well done. And I believe I'll hear it if those four kids that Tracy and I raised and those grandchildren of ours that they're now raising, if when I leave this world, if when I go the way of all the earth, my kids and grandkids and others coming behind me can go, you know what? If we can just put our footsteps in dad's steps, then we'll know we're headed in the right direction. And I believe God would say, well done. Well done. So David spent his last days helping Solomon get ready to build the right kind of house. Turn one page, verse 29. Solomon buries his dad. David dies. Verse number 26 says, I'm in chapter 29, verse 26. David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned was 40 years, 7 years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. Verse 28 says, and David died in a good old age, full of days, full of riches, and full of honor. And I just wonder, I don't know exactly how this went, but I just wonder if in the moments of the days before David actually closed his eyes in death. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel they put him in a bed. He, he couldn't even, uh, you know, get, his own, self in, get him on, his own self in the bed. They put him in a bed and they cover him up with covers, the Bible says. It was deathbed. In fact, it says they covered him with many covers and he still couldn't get warm. When you get old, your blood gets thin. I felt that a little bit. They covered him with covers and he drew his feet up in the bed. I just wonder if while he laid there, knowing that soon he would see the face of God, as he lay there thinking of all that he had left for Solomon and thinking back through all those paths and days and from the moment that Samuel had anointed him king, he was a little shepherd boy, all that God had brought him through. I wonder if David sang to himself some of the songs that he himself had written, some of the psalms. And I particularly wonder if he sang to himself that most famous psalm, which is a glorious psalm, but it has a rather inglorious name. It's just number 23, the 23rd psalm. I wonder if he sang that. I don't know if he did, but we're going to. So why don't you stand with me, would you? Actually, we're not going to sing it because I'm not a song leader. And it'll just be a bigger blessing to all of us if we just say it. But would you mind, and if you're at home watching online, would you stand as well? Would you mind with some passion and maybe feeling as the Spirit would allow you to the emotion and the passion that David must have felt in the last moments of his life. Maybe he recited these words. Let's do it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul.
He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely, stop right there. Everybody say it again. Surely, say it like you believe it. Surely, keep going, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.